sunflowerofpeace.com. Hello to our Commonwealth Club podcast listeners and viewers. This is a quick note from us, the employees of the club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Sunflower of Peace is an organization working to support the people of Ukraine affected by the Russian military invasion. In collaboration with a global network of organizations, Sunflower of Peace procures, ships, and distributes vital medical supplies to Ukrainian health workers. It provides first aid backpacks, medicines, and essential medical supplies necessary for the very survival of the victims of this war. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting sunflowerofpeace.com. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome you if you're watching this a live stream or if you're watching it later on YouTube. This is one of over 700 programs that we've done at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco since the pandemic began a little over two years ago now. And uh, we are enjoying the process. We wish that we had people in our audience. But we're enjoying the process of bringing to you what we usually brought to you to our live audiences uh, to bring it to you online so that people can see what people are thinking about all across the world. Um, we've brought in authors from everywhere. Now, uh, today we have Sarah Mednick. She's from San Diego. Um, and uh, she has a great new book called The Power of the Down State. Um, she's a uh, psychology professor at the University of California, Irvine, and she's also in charge of their sleep lab. Um, so she does research in this area, and she's written a book. First, we're going to talk about that research, because there's a lot of recent research on the brain that those of you that read about the recent about brain research even 20 or 30, 40 years ago, uh, it's not quite, the thinking is not quite the same as it used to be. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But first, I'd like to ask you, how did you get to UC Irvine, you know, and, and, and doing this kind of research? And how did you end up in charge of the sleep research lab? And just a little bit of background on that. Great. Well, thank you. First of all, just thanks for having me. It's a thrill to be here. Um, let's see. I was working, I was getting my graduate degree in psychology in the Harvard psychology department, and I was in a vision lab studying perception, and I walked in on a lecture um, that Bob Stickgold was giving, and this is when he first started doing his research. Um, he was the first person to really develop a method to study the effect of sleep on memory. Mm. Um, there had been a lot of kind of ways of looking at sleep um, that were sort of more, you know, like, does your daily content of your life influence your dreams? And, you know, some animal studies had, but nobody had really figured out how to do it with um, humans and, and memory. Mm -hmm. And so he, and it's, and it's so simple when you say it, but really he had developed this paradigm of, test people on a memory test, let them go to sleep, and then test them again when they wake up, mm -hmm. compare that group to a group that didn't sleep, right? And, th and then just look at the differences in performance and then look at what's happening in, in the brain while the person's sleeping using the EEG that you were recording during mm -hmm. the sleep, which is talking, you know, which is recording the electrical activity in the neurons in the brain. And 
this was such interesting. Um, this is such an interesting approach, and also was so novel um, that he could show that you needed six to eight hours of nighttime sleep, and you needed this amount of slow wave sleep, and you needed this amount of REM sleep, mm-hmm. and then you would show these improvements in memory. That was so interesting, and he was such a wacky, interesting character that I thought I could work with this guy, <laughs> um, and so I uh, approached him, and we and he agreed, and my. Um, uh, advisor in the vision lab at Harvard, um, Ken Nakayama also agreed. And they let me build a little sleep lab in the vision lab mm-hmm. in the printer room. And I got a little bed and, mm-hmm. uh, and I got a little portable EEG system and I kind of learned how to use that. And then I started looking at naps because, you know, nobody could figure out why naps would work. Why mm-hmm. would a nap of say 20 minutes to an hour make you feel amazing. But if you took that kind of sleep in the middle of the night, it would feel like crap, right? Like that wouldn't be right. enough sleep. So we started doing these studies on naps and then that took off uh, and became my first book, Take a Nap, Change Your Life, mm-hmm. um, because it just showed, wow, you know, the nap is a very special sleep opportunity. There's something interesting happening during the day that you're getting this enough slow wave sleep and enough REM sleep within one period that you could show the same magnitude of memory Im- memory improvement as people did after a full night of sleep. So uh, was one of that your was first, how I... Was one of your first uh, students there Bill Clinton? Because uh, he was known for doing this. I have a great quote of Bill Clinton um, who said that he thinks that sleep deprivation is the main cause of all of the um, strife and difficulty in Washington today. Mm. Um, and I always thought that that was right on, right? Because mm. people used to... They used to, you know, they they had their home in Oklahoma, but they would spend long periods of time in D.C. um, and just stay there and do Washington business and then go home for vacations. But now they're constantly going back and forth to their constituents and having to be constantly on um, on and that people are exhausted. And so it's making people uh, less thoughtful, less compassionate and um, making poorer choices. Mm, Yes. (laughs) Well, uh one of the other things you mentioned in your book, which I think people don't focus on, is that Article 24 of the UN Declaration is... What's what? The right to rest and leisure. Yeah, exactly. people don't talk yes. about that one a lot, as you said, yeah. No, it's the, one, it's the one of all of these, you know, these were supposed to all be human rights articles that are our basic human rights as human beings, that, mm. that, that, you know, we are born into the world with these and, you know, inalienable rights. Mm-hmm. I can never say that word. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and this idea that, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt was, was one of the main um, uh, supporters of this idea is that not only do we need to have, you know, the right to not be slaves and the right to um, speech and, you know, re- represent ourselves, but also we need to be able to take a break. Mm-hmm. That actually, you know, our rest time is our is a human right, and it's it's something that we need, and it's part of living. You know that the rest should be part of living, but that is the one article that throughout the history of that Declaration of Human Rights, people have said that they should take out because that's not important. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's important. not as important as all the others. We want the people to work for all all the time. Not- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's go to the science about this. Now, there's two, two uh, systems in the body, in the nervous system, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. And you, you equate that with this 
you, the downstate, the upstate, as you call them. Um, and when you put out the statistics, like uh, the average amount of sleep is 68 hours, and then you have the weekends, and then a couple of other things, and it's almost exactly we spend about half the time in one state and half the time in the other of our time. So about, you know, our, our life is split between two different things. Um, so tell us a little bit about how those two systems operate, um, and, and maybe a little bit of the history. When did people figure that out? Because they, yeah. didn't, they didn't have that idea. Right. Well, uh, you know, there's so many things that you just brought up. So, mm -hmm. so first we, we have, um, right, so we have the central nervous system, mm -hmm. which is basically, you know, the, the brain and the spinal cord. Um, and then we have, and, and that's taking care of sort of, you know, all the neurons and making sure all the, the motor neurons in the body and, you know, are all functioning well. And then we actually have a system, as you mentioned, the autonomic nervous system, which is kind of taking care of what, what used to be thought of just taking care of like the guts and the water power functions and the temperature, right? Just mm. keeping us at the, um, you know, the right plumbing systems, mm. um, but nothing really cognitive and nothing emotional and, mm. um, and nothing about the intellectual things that we always thought was going that the, that the brain was taking care of. And more and more, um, and so the autonomic nervous system, as you said, has two branches. Mm -hmm. um, one is the sympathetic, which is the, um, the fight or flight system. It's the stress response. In the book, I call it REV, because it's mm -hmm. the one that revs you up. And then there's the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest. And this is sort of a sister system to the rev system because it's the restorative, right? The second that you're revving yourself up, you have to restore and calm down. This is incredibly important for homeostasis and balance. Um, and, uh, and the more you have a good ratio between the sympathetic or parasympathetic and parasympathetic, the more healthy you are mm -hmm. um, because you're able to calm down your stress response, calm down that arousal system, um, and go into a state of deep relaxation to restore after this very stressful um, energy-depleting exertion, which happens, you know, all day long, basically, but mm -hmm. also when we're stressed out. Um, and so you need to go into this restorative mode to replenish um, whatever energy you used up and to calm the system down and get it ready for the next rev response, right? And so the idea is that we're actually... Um, these things don't just happen randomly, mm -hmm. but that things happen in rhythms mm -hmm. and that we are as... Animals, um, living beings on the earth, we are based in rhythms. And we have rhythms where um, the rhythms, why they are good is that they provide us periods of upstates and downstates. And during the upstates, we are optimized for this exertion and this kind of you know arousal response because we're provided with all of the energy that we need, all the nutrients, our brains function at their best during that time, our bodies functioning at their best. At, at, at its best at that time. And after this upstate, you go into a downstate in order to repair um, the tissues and rebuild the systems um, that were used up in the upstate and get it ready for the next upstate, right? So it's just a rhythm of upstates and downstates. And you see this across many different systems in the body and the brain, um, in 
in um, deep sleep, you can see that we have these slow waves mm-hmm. um, and the slow waves have an upstate and a downstate where the upstate is where all of the neurons are speaking at once mm-hmm. and you have massive neural communication and then suddenly the brain goes silent mm-hmm. um, and all the neurons go silent and they stop firing. Um, and this happens you know, many hundreds of times across a night um, as you're going into deep sleep. And so the idea for the book was really coming out of this idea of saying that we've kind of forgotten this framework of mm-hmm. rhythms and how important it is that we have upstates and downstates and that the more we can um, abide by these, uh, particularly, you know, paying attention to the downstates, the, the, the stronger we'll be and the better we'll be and, and, and the more we'll be, the more supported we'll be in our upstate. Um, when people talk about, you know, restoring the body by sleep and stuff, it's, it's often like an abstract idea. But it's not abstract. The body is flushing chemicals out. And I mean, it, you're, the way you distribute energy, as you say, even our, in the book, even our senses, we, we think of them as we see things, we hear things. But whatever, whatever waves we take in through our different senses is translated into electrical impulses that are passed along our nerves. So uh, those nerves use chemicals to do that, and they have to restore themselves, just like a battery has to restore itself. I think you used that, that analogy. Um, and so that chemical um, process requires that firing doesn't take place, but instead the chemicals, chemicals all get washed out again. I, I think it's important, I think, for people to understand how physically oriented that restoration processes because they say oh i'd like to get five minutes of sleep and then i'll be fine you know it, yeah it, it doesn't you know the chemicals all don't change in that amount of time yeah it's 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 astonishing how much we put on sleep mm-hmm. to take care of ourselves when we're awake mm-hmm. um you know in that in that period of time uh we sort of you know the the things that we can get done are um, all of our daytime experiences, you know, all those memories that we want to hold on to, information that we want to learn and hold on to, that all uh, gets strengthened and consolidated into long-term memory and then associated with all the things that we know from our past and kind of integrated into our semantic knowledge networks. Um, we have a whole flushing system, as you said, where mm-hmm. we have waves of cerebral spinal fluid that wash the proteins that are used up while we're thinking and doing and being that get left over in the brain. Um, And you need to wash those away on a nightly basis, because if you don't, they can grow into these tangles that um, go along with symptoms of um, dementia and Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. later in life, right? And so, so, you know, that you, you need this as a daily practice of washing those chemicals, those proteins away, um, or you actually have this buildup across time, right? So, and, and and then you also have protein synthesis that occurs during sleep. You have the repairing of muscle tissue, um, the decrease of the sympathetic arousal system, and the increase of, say, growth hormone, um, and uh, you know a lot of different antioxidant properties take off during sleep as well. So. Yeah, it's it's doing a lot of heavy lifting <laughs> for for our day to day activities. Yeah. Where is the science now on the connection between the lack of sleep and Alzheimer's? You just mentioned that. I mean, we we know that there's a connection, at least a correlation between these uh, you know development of um, protein 
entanglements and everything in your brain. Um, and so it looks like that's being caused, that's the cause, or at least one of the causes. But how much research is there that, like, not getting enough sleep is one of the reasons for that? It's a, it's a really great question. It's a very exciting new area of sleep. Um, there's really just the beginning of understanding how these things are related. But I'll talk about a couple of different studies that, that kind of will elucidate the, where we're at. Um, one study, there's a really a great guy um, at UC Irvine, uh, Bryce Mander, and he's done a series of studies looking at, in older adults, um, how you know, the, the frontal lobe is really the functioning center for executive function and um, inhibition and focus, you know, selective attention, working memory, all of these things that taking all the information from the brain and kind of sorting it out and deciding what you should be doing and what you should be paying attention to. Um, and this is also the area of the brain where you have these uh, slow waves that I was talking about during sleep that are so important for all of these benefits of sleep. Um, well, what, um, what Bryce and others have done is shown that the relationship between the memory decreases that we see across aging and the decrease in slow waves that we see across aging mm -hmm. and the shutdown of this frontal lobe area that we see across aging are all related to each other. Mm -hmm. um, what is happening first? Uh, you know, is it that um, is it that sleep starts to uh, decrease? That we maybe spend less time focusing on you know what I call downstate activities that really enhance sleep and focus. And is it really like the slow waves that start to decrease? Is it that we stop learning new things as we get older? So it's kind of like a uh, use it or lose it mechanism where if you don't really use that um, brain area, it starts to decay. Um, and so that's why we stop having this good functioning in that system. But, but there's, there's many, we have, we have no idea the causality, but mm -hmm. we do know that, um, that there is this very strong relationship between decreased functioning at the behavioral level um, decrease activity at the frontal lobe and decrease slow waves during sleep that are all related. Mm -hmm. We also know from other studies that that washing away that is called the glymphatic system, right? Because the, um, there, are, there are glia in the brain and people didn't really know what the glia were for. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lymphatic system in the body that cleans out the body. And what we, what a woman um, in Denmark, um, uh, I can see her face. Anyway, I'll think mm. of her name mm. <laughs> a second later. Um, what she discovered is this: that actually these glia are taking care of um, that washing away of the toxins. And what we now understand, I mean, that goes on during deep sleep. And what we now understand is that even small amounts of sleep deprivation, like one night of sleep deprivation, can leave those proteins in your brain and they don't get washed out with subsequent nights. Mm -hmm. So, and this is at a, you know, in midlife, you can see the effects of how well people are sleeping and then longitudinally, what is their risk of developing uh, uh, dementia and Alzheimer's later on in their sixties mm -hmm. and seventies. So 70s and 80s. So, so, you know, we don't know, we, we, you know, we don't have it all written down and we right. have all figured it out, but these are the pieces. 
And the pieces really are pointing to what we're doing in, you know, our 30s and 40s when we stop focusing on these downstate opportunities that create uh, more relaxation, higher parasympathetic activity during the day, but also better sleep at night, that this has an effect later on. Let's go to a big piece about brain research that has shifted over time. Uh, if you go back to the early 70s, there was like a right brain, left brain, and one does one thing and the other does the other thing. And um, now there's a lot more information about the plasticity of the brain, that if, if you lose part of the brain, that it can be rewired. So even though a lot of research shows that activity goes on in different areas of the brain for different purposes, if you lose part of the brain, sometimes that can be rewired. Is that correct? I mean, that's, that's basically Yeah, the younger you are, the better, you, better off you are at the rewiring process. Uh -huh. But for sure... Um, it's never too late. You know, it's never too late to start exercising. It's never too late to start eating better. It's never too late to start doing brain games and, uh, you know, to start doing um, HRV or, you know, like deep breathing exercises that increase parasympathetic activity during the day. All, you know, whenever you start, you start to see benefits. So, so um, I think that that's something that, you know, sometimes... Sometimes the things I'm saying sound like, oh, it's it's all screwed. You know, like, like, whatever. It's it's too late. But but it actually all these research studies show that this um, you know, the moment that you start taking care of yourself, you start to see benefits and you see long-term benefits. So for sure there's a lot more plasticity um, than uh, we give we give the brain credit. There's a lot of ability for it to bounce back and rebound. Excellent. That's good news for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, because everyone was like, well, you, well I've, once I've ruined it, you know, forget it. And, you know, yeah, why? That, it yeah, I'm just going to eat like Cheetos that. for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, you mentioned something very briefly, HRV, and I really wanted to talk about this for a while because that's something I've read, done a lot of reading in this area, but I, that's not anything people have focused on. So, it's heart rate variability, and it's the yeah. amount of time between your heart rates. And as you, you quoted someone, say, the heart is not a metronome, it doesn't go boom, boom. Boom. that there's variation. Now, the variations are in hundreds of milliseconds, you said, so it's not like a big variation. So who figured out that this was important, and how strong is the correlation between having larger differences, more variability being kind of good that's correlated with having a happier life, and the other one? And, and, and is it, where is the state of this research, too? Because you mentioned it a lot, and I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a, such an I, I, th I think at this point, we're just beginning to appreciate the role of, I mean, HRV is a reflection of the autonomic nervous system, and I'll explain what that is. But, but I'll just say right now, we are just beginning to appreciate the role of the autonomic nervous system in all of, in, in, in every aspect of our life um, mm -hmm. in terms of science, in the brain, um, in our emotions, in our well-being, in, in our physical health. Um, as well. So I think that it's, it's a really exciting time to be <clears throat> in this field. So let me just explain a little bit about um, what the HRV signal is. I just realized that I have to turn my phone. Oh my God, thank God. My phone wasn't <laughs> off. <laughs> so the HRV signal, heart rate variability, exactly as you say. Um, I love that line. Who is it by Fred Stone or something? I something like that. And um, 
where the, the heart is not a metronome, that we have different times between our heartbeats. And why is that important? Well, if you think about your ability to immediately react to what's going on in the world around you, be it something positive, be it something negative, is it to run away, is it to go hug somebody, um, and then is it to get excited, but then also you want to be able to calm down mm -hmm. if there is nothing wrong, right? And you want to not be at this, it's very, uh, it takes a lot of energy and it's very corrosive to constantly be at a high stress. Mm -hmm. So the second you don't want stress, you want to be able to calm down. Well, a good metric for your ability to you know, roll with the punches of life and then recover really quickly is your heart rate because the heart is pumping blood um, through the body and the brain to where you need, for, you know, is it muscles? Is it the brain? Is it your stomach? You know, whatever it is. Um, so you want to have a system that can quickly ramp up and let you run away from the tiger. And then if it's not a tiger, to quickly calm down and realize like everything's cool. Let's just go back to status quo. And that means that a heart rate uh, should be able to quickly change. And so the more variability you have in your heart rate variability, the more your system is able to adapt uh, very quickly, flexibly to the environment mm -hmm. and to changes in the environment. And that heart rate variability is really under the control of the restore system of the parasympathetic system. Um, it's the sympathetic system that revs you up, and then it's the parasympathetic restore system that comes in and, and, and um, calms you down. Mm -hmm. So we measure this heart rate variability as basically reflecting how... Um, <clears throat> how well your brain is able to control your body mm -hmm. and, uh, and create um, either the response to the environment that's you know, running around or the response to the environment that's calming down. Hold on for one second. Go out. <laughs> Thank you. My kids just walked in. Yeah. Um, so, I could tell uh, by the smile on your face. I know. I was like, oh my God, I know that. I know those people. I know those old feet. Um, so, uh, when we talk about heart rate variability, what we're really looking at is your ability to um, uh, uh, have a good rev restore ratio, a good sympathetic parasympathetic ratio. And how that's related to your brain is that this is actually in the system that's in control of this. Um, restore rev ratio is the frontal lobe. That one, that area I was talking about earlier. The stronger your, um, the stronger your ability to sort of top, to use your top-down mechanisms of saying, "Okay, everything's cool. Calm down. We're all safe. We're good. There is no tiger." That really is reflecting how strongly your frontal lobe is in charge of your heart. Mm -hmm. and is in charge of your guts and is in charge of all of those physiological systems below the neck. Mm -hmm. So when we see high heart rate variability, what, we are, um, what we're saying is that that person is, has a strong frontal lobe and is able to really flexibly control the physiology to respond to the world. There's also learning how to make that happen through biofeedback, Right. Okay. Yeah. So why don't you say just a little bit about that? Yeah. So I mean, does this it does it, it does it make your you to be more strong willed and stuff like that, or is it just yes. a biofeedback thing? Yeah. Okay. No, for sure. Because think about the fact that um, you know the 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 root of this 
calming down system of, of this kind of restoring, re- replenishing system is your breath. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you are in a stressed response, your heart rate increases and your breathing gets more rapid, right? You suddenly want to <laughs> right, start to have sort of panting breath. And so the first thing, it's very hard to just immediately calm your heart rate down. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is calm your breathing. Mm-hmm. And so um, when we engage in slow, deep breathing, what we're doing is we're we're shifting our breathing into a controlled, steady state that basically is telling the rest of the body that everything's cool, there's no reason to panic, mm-hmm. we're all good here, right? And I can have this very strong, controlled breathing where my breathing, my respiration actually um, uh, is in sync with my heart rate. Mm-hmm. And I, I can talk a little bit more about that if you want, which is that the heart rate has a specific frequency of speeding up and slowing down and speeding up and slowing mm-hmm. down. And the heart, the, the respiration is much faster. Mm-hmm. And so we have this kind of non-efficient system where when you're inhaling very quickly and exhaling very quickly, that um, speeding up of the heart rate that's trying to gobble up all that oxygen isn't really gobbling up that much oxygen because you're already exhaling by the time it starts to speed up, mm-hmm. by, by the time the heart rate. So when you slow the breathing down to basically six breaths per minute, mm-hmm. you're creating an, uh, a synchrony between your breath and your heart rate such that the slow inhale is coupled with the speeding up of the heart rate, it's gobbling up all the oxygen. And by the time the exhale is happening, the heart starts to slow down because it doesn't, it's inefficient to continue to be super fast at, at, your, at beating. So it slows down because there's no more oxygen. So then you see when you do this um, slow, deep breathing, you amplify your restore system and you get this really strong increase in your HRV signal. So that's just with, you know, engaging slow, deep breathing. And that's one of the items that I really recommend that people do Mm -hmm. um, in the book, which is, you know, 10 minutes of just slow, deep breathing or just slow, deep breathing all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, whenever you possibly can. But as you said, you can also get a device that's a HIV biofeedback system where you can get a visual signal that can tell you whether you're really syncing up the heart mm. and the respiration. Um, uh, and that is a much kind of, you know, it's just a much more direct signal to let you know how well you're doing in terms of um, slowing down your breath to match your heart rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you do that biofeedback, you usually see this really big increases in HIV. And then there's a woman um, at USC, Mara Mather, who says who shows that about six weeks of this HIV training actually really shows um, changes in the brain associated with a stronger frontal lobe, mm-hmm. larger white matter volume. Mm-hmm. So some pretty uh, you know, amazing um, restorative strengthening experiences that can happen with just slowing down in the middle of the day. Doesn't just all have to happen at sleep. Well, you mentioned a few things in your book uh, that, so I can, I can go here, but I'm sure you must hear from some yogis about all this um, because it sounds a lot like uh, pranayama and other breathing exercises they've been talking about. But the one question I, I wanted to ask you was, uh, the Indians in their medicine, uh, they have something called pulse diagnosis, doctors who diagnose the pulse. All they do is put their fingers on your pulse, and then they tell you what's wrong with you. Mm. And, you know, 
I don't know whether that, any of that is accurate or not. But if, there's a, if they can tell the difference in the heart rate variability, um, they might be able to pick up something that way. But you probably, you haven't read anything about that kind of research, I assume. No, but I think that you're right. I think that that's probably, there's something in there. I don't know how long they'd have to listen to it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to get a good signal, right? Like, I mean, I doubt it could just be a couple of heartbeats. But, you know, I mean, you could probably tell a lot by just saying that's a high heart rate. And yeah. we're just sitting here. Why, yeah. you know, what's going on over there, right? So right. there's probably some, but but how? Yeah, yeah I don't know. The rest of it's, tele <laughs> the rest of it's telepathy <laughs> and not scientific, so we won't go there. But, but you did Who mention, knows? you mentioned, I mean, we'll get some more of the practical advice a little later on, but you did mention a story which I thought was funny, and I had come across it before, about these uh, Buddhist uh, monks in the Himalayas that have a contest as to who can dry the towel. Why don't you, they do sort of training and they can change the heat of their body by 14 degrees, you said. So yeah. is, is there any? I actually really, I, so I read about that in mm -hmm. James Nestor's book, Breath. Right. Uh, and I thought, what, what? what? And yeah. so I actually went back to the science article mm -hmm. that was published, I don't, in the 50s, mm -hmm. I think. And I, it's, you know, there are these guys who are basically in like you know the 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 monk triathlon monks you know right. like they are and they live in these like tin huts in mountainous snowy regions mm -hmm. and they have breath work that allows them to create so much heat in their bodies mm -hmm. that they can literally change their temperature by by large amounts such that they can go from having freezing cold wet towels mm -hmm. on their backs to you know however many minutes later these are dry towels mm -hmm. on their backs that, right and, and it's just steam that just comes off of them and and the competition is how many you know, wet to dry towels can you get? And, and that's the winner of this competition. And so, you know, I'm sure a lot of garbage is, it gets, gets, gets published in science magazine, but, but, but it was in science. And I think, wow, that's, you know, I mean, that's a pretty astonishing feature of, uh, of the autonomic nervous system that, that if, if, if that's actually possible and we've, you know, for the most part, Western medicine does not engage no. with that kind of information um, or with that kind of self-regulation um, and, and power, right? It's, it's a powerful tool. So well, I, I, I think, think it's... Maybe, maybe they don't engage because you don't encourage people to spend their lives learning how to dry <laughs> towels, you know, uh, through yogic abilities because... I mean, why you know, not? You, you must not have <laughs> anything to do in the Himalayas if you spend your time trying to dry towels that way or there's that no electricity to do it with a dryer. I mean, it, it's a thing. very fascinating ability to be able to do, but I think when you read some of these other stories that are similar, you think it's got to be a better way to use your time than to try to develop <laughs> this, this talent. And it, but you know, yes, and it points to a a a, a self regulation ability that I think, as you know, modern industrialized cultures, we have lost. Yeah. yeah. So there is something in there that's you know self healing, mm -hmm. and uh, is a level of interoception, you know, like a self-knowledge of bodily self mm -hmm. that is also lost. Um, so, and I think that we expect a lot of uh, 
um, we have a high expectation for medicine and pills right. and not a lot on our own ability to, you know, detect disease and to self-regulate. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, it's, there's something there that I think probably we would do good to also recognize. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with that hundred percent. I just make a joke about it because it's just like, you know, <laughs> There, there are other ways to use Who's that stuff, but, but it is, yeah. it's like Who's showing off. It's like showing up. Look what I can do. And, and there are other elements to it. Absolutely. But it's interesting yeah. because, uh, as you said, we, we approach a lot of modern medicine from pills. But I think uh, you're in one area of, of the science of the brain and everything like that. And we're, we're amazed and we should be amazed at how much we've learned in the last couple hundred years about our bodies. But we also have to admit we probably still only know two or three or five percent or of what's going on at the, at the very most. And so we should be open to be surprised. I mean, that's the scientific uh, way, way of doing things. And, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So um, let's go back to the changes in sleep uh, theory. Because as I recall, you know, when I was younger, it was like there was two parts to sleep. There was deep sleep and there was REM sleep. And REM sleep was when you dreamt, and deep sleep was when you didn't uh, dream. But that seems to have changed quite a bit. Um, Dreams show up in other places besides REM sleep, etc. So why don't you, you, you lay out in your book the four different stages. The one stage is just the getting started one, but the three stages, and, and you showed the map of how it happened. Why don't you tell everybody what they're doing when they're not paying any attention while they're sleeping? Right, when they're, <laughs> when they're checking out. So we go into uh, you know, different stages of sleep, and, and they're categorized based on their brain activity, that each stage uh, has a specific... Um, features of, of sort of electrophysiological features, which I mean by that is, is that the brain is emitting a, a little blip of electrical energy that, um, you know, is a, is a way of communicating between neurons. Um, and those little signatures of, um, of sleep seem to be grouped into different sleep stages. So we go into, as you said, we have stage one, which is just that kind of falling asleep stage, but it's also pretty critical, right? That's really when you have a really big change in your heart rate. Um, everything slows down at that point and you get um, heart rate slowing down, temperature decreasing, blood flow slowing down as well. Um, and your brain activity also starts to slow down. So you, you know, instead of you know being in a state of um, multitasking, where a lot of the different areas of your brain are doing different things, right? Seeing different things, listening, um, thinking, tasting, um, remembering, right? All those different aspects. That all means that those different brain areas are asynchronously firing, right? They're kind of communicating in different ways. Um, but when you fall asleep, your neurons start to synchronize, and the um, and the and and the whole um, busyness of waking starts to decrease, and you see these much more slower rhythms. And actually, um, rhythms of the of the sleeping brain are between zero and say. Um, I would say maybe 20 hertz or mm. maybe a little bit faster than that. But whereas like, you know, thinking is up in the hundreds, right? Mm. So, uh, so when you go into stage two sleep, what you find is something called a sleep spindle. Mm -hmm. And that's a really interesting, it's a little um, spindle shaped uh, electrical signature of stage two sleep. And that seems to be 
a sleep fa- a sleep um, event that is reflecting neural communication between your memory brain areas mm-hmm. so that the more you see um, sleep spindles during sleep the more people wake up and remember what they were learning before they went to sleep um, you also see that there's uh, correlations between the amount of sleep spindles people have during stage two sleep and their IQ scores so intelligence scores um, so there seems to be something very cognitive um, in the amount of sleep spindles. And then when you're going into deeper and deeper sleep, you start to see these slow waves and they get, they start in stage two and then they kind of get deeper and stronger in slow wave sleep. Um, And that's the other part of the brain that we usually call deep sleep. And you're right that sometimes you can have these kind of mentation type of dreams. They're not the kind of wacky dreams that you get in REM sleep, but you definitely have some sort of dreamlike behavior that's sort of less crazy mm-hmm. um <laughs> and you go you stay in that uh so when we're going into our sleep we basically go into a sleep um cycle and each cycle basically means that you're going to go through all the different sleep stages stage one stage two stage three and then back from from deep stage three, you'll go into stage two and then up to REM sleep. And I I say REM sleep is up here and it's at the end of a sleep cycle because REM is very different than slow wave sleep. Slow wave sleep is a period where your brain, all the neurons in your brain are synchronizing to this slow wave. And it's literally a one second uh, um, electrical experience in the brain where the whole brain goes into a state of up state where the neurons all start firing and then a down state where the whole brain um, is quiet Mm -hmm. and it happens like a wave it starts in the front of your head Mm -hmm. um, and it just goes all the way back so it's this really interesting like waves of Mm -hmm. um, electrical activity that probably match the waves of that glymphatic clearance that plumbing system we were talking about Mm -hmm. and so um, so, the, so you know, neurons, it's a very different brain state than waking because there isn't all that random firing. Everything is firing very synchronously. Once you get to enough of that slow wave sleep, then you pass through stage two again and over to REM. And REM sleep then is a period of really wild random firing that looks just like waking Mm-hmm. In fact, it used to be called paradoxical sleep because it looks so much like waking that the only way that people could identify that the subject was sleeping in REM sleep was that they had atonia because, you know, when you're in REM sleep, you have full muscle paralysis, as you know, in, that, which functions to help people not live out their dreams and go running through their house and then barge through a glass window or whatever it is, you know, um, you, you're fully paralyzed while you're while you're having these kind of crazy dreams, and so then you spend a little bit of time in REM sleep, and then once you have satisfied this uh, sleep cycle, then the whole thing starts over again. Mm-hmm. But the way that our sleep is organized across the night is actually that because slow wave sleep is the most restorative, right? This is really where you get to decrease all the. Um, the stress hormone cortisol and you have really big in- increases in growth hormone um, and you see all sorts of immunological benefits. You see memory benefits, clearance benefits, all this kind of restorative stuff that's really, really critical. Most of your slow wave sleep happens the, the first hours of your nighttime. 
Um, and then once you've satisfied your need for slow wave sleep, it becomes less and less and less and less. And then REM starts to take over, which is why we have a lot of REM sleep in the morning. And when you wake up, you sort of feel like, oh, I've been dreaming all night. But it was really just that morning mm -hmm. period where you had your REM sleep. Mm -hmm. Well, we have a lot of questions coming in, which is great. Um, okay. And we'll, we'll get to them in just a second. Um, but first, um, well, there's two things I'd like to uh, do. One, the questions, and then we'll talk about the practical advice you have in your book. Um, and if we won't have time for all the good practical advice, but um, the book is there. The book is there to get all those details. We'll talk about the and big issues. Can, yeah. Yeah. And people can get, go to my website, sarahmednick.com, and I'm on Twitter, Sarah underscore mm -hmm. Mednick, and I can always answer questions through if we don't get to enough today. Great. But before we go on to the questions, I want to ask you about the other Dr. Mednick who did research in this area, and, and, and are you related? <laughs> yeah, Sarnoff Mednick, he was my dad. Um, <laughs> there are so many things that I feel like I was just following in his footsteps in terms of science. Um, so when he was... He, he's one of the first people who suggested that the brain and the hippocampus in particular really matters. Um, the hippocampus is the memory area. And he had a whole idea of the importance of the hippocampus for schizophrenia before anybody was talking about the brain. He also did a whole bunch of research on um, the developing brain in, in, the, in the pregnant mother, um, the developing brain of the, of the fetus, and how different traumas to the mother during the pre pregnancy period could have an effect on the developing brain, which could then have a later effect on the adult human mm -hmm. um, child. So that's, you know, one background. But before all that, he was, well, it's not before all that. It was actually during that time, he was uh, very interested in how development in, in early childhood, you know, not just in the pregnant, in, in, the, in, the, in the fetal stage, but also in early childhood, how did um, nutrition, how did any kind of trauma, any kind of stress on this child affect, its, um, affect his or her development at, into an adult? And so he created this project called the Mauritius Project. And... Um, uh, Quite, a, quite amazingly, he started these preschools in Mauritius before this time, you know, and, and the control was just the, the, the typical care for children at that time was just kind of, you know, to be cared for by um, uh, the small schools that were there or by grandparents. Um, and so he developed a system where the children would come and not only would they be put into a preschool where they would, you know, have academic learning, but they would have nutrition. Mm -hmm. And this was the most important probably program that he started was showing that nutrition um, in early preschool time had actual effects on the, intel on the intelligence, but also on the behavioral outcomes of people in their teens and their 20s and their 30s. Mm -hmm. um, so he would watch these kids develop and he would show that when these kids were given really good meals every day in preschool compared to whatever the normal food was and the whatever normal treatment was given during, you know, in the non uh, um, experimental preschool group, um, they showed that 
the levels of malnutrition, levels of any kind of trauma actually had effects on the growing adult, um, where there was more behavioral problems, there was more criminal behavior, um, there was decrease in academic scores. He also was one of the first people to introduce the idea of omega-3s in the early diet mm -hmm. to help with brain development and showed that actually omega-3s could have impacts on um, developing adult as well. So and this was in the 60s. <laughs> I, I, that research was an inspiration for Head Start, the Head Start program. Yes, right? exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so people have, you know, this is, there's nothing new under the sun, right? But I feel like our modern culture tries to make us forget mm -hmm. um, the importance of these basic qualities of life. Um, right. And I think, you know, part of, part of my book is really just saying, you know, let's bring it back to the basics because mm -hmm. these basics are what, are what we need as animals, what they're what we need as living things to actually be healthy. Yeah, I mean, you you, you even show that uh, in in some research that rats, uh, if they take a nap, can learn you know, learn their mazes faster. So they must, and you think that there's evidence that they're dreaming, that they dream their way because the the nerves in their brain fire or the neurons fire the same way that they do when they're trying to learn it. That's that that's research. So. And uh, that's that spindle I was talking about. Yeah. That, that, that is related to that spindle. The more spindles they have, the more of that replay that they're showing during sleep and the better they are when they wake up. And that's true for humans as well. So you're not in favor of our society that makes people proud of being stressed out or more stressed out than other people? <laughs> no, you know, or I remember Qualcomm, they had this, uh, is a big company here and, 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 you know, it's a great family. They give a lot to the community. Um, but they also, one of their mottos is a highly caffeinated company. <laughs> like, <laughs> not a big sell for me, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> Maybe they just have a, an investment in Folgers. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, we have a lot of questions uh, from the audience, and so uh, let's, let's uh, go to those. And, and thanks for sending them in. So uh, here's one from Bhavani Chandriksar. What is the difference? Oh, wow. What is the difference between brain and mind? <laughs> well, that's really good. I guess the way I think about it is the brain, um, you know, when you're a neuroscientist, you're studying the brain. Mm hmm when I'm thinking of the mind, I'm actually thinking of I'm, you know, studying the brain, studying the neurons, studying mm -hmm. brain activity, studying blood flow, studying, you know, sort of plastic changes that occur with performance. That kind of stuff is what I think of the brain. But the mind is sort of the whole nut, right? It's the whole, it's, it's how we use our uh, conscious behavior and conscious thinking to interact with the world. Um, so I think that there's a level of consciousness that kind of gets put into the definition of mind that I think um, uh, it, 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 you know, maybe the brain is the hardware and the mind is the whole system. Mm -hmm. well, that's one of the best answers I've heard of that question. Um, <laughs> is that a regular question you get here? <laughs> I thought it was going to be, oh my goodness. I can't, okay, so uh, Arun Verma asks, uh, the best way for your research to fall asleep. Any suggestions? Yes, she has lots of suggestions. Tons. First, Tons read my book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Take. Yeah. But why don't, why, don't um, you, why don't you do a couple of the basic ones? Yeah. Well, I, um, I think that one of, one of the things that I think that we forget a lot about when we're just thinking about sleep is, well, what did I do 
all day long leading up to sleep. And, and a lot of the time we're just thinking about, you know, sleep hygiene, create a dark space, cool space, quiet, wear earplugs, all that stuff, you know, and write down all the thoughts and try to get to bed early. And all of that stuff is covered in the book for sure. But I think that the thing that I like about, um, I think what I'm adding that's new is that people are not focusing on the entire day and what they did the entire day. And we expect that we can just be in a super stressed out state that just ramps up our, you know, revs up our system all day long. And it gets to this point and then suddenly we're at the end of the day and sleep is supposed to just take care of all of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, but we're overstressed um, and we are, you know, exposing ourselves to all sorts of light, um, that and 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 emotional experiences that are not necessarily conducive to sleep, and we haven't done enough during the day to really decrease those stress responses. So mm-hmm. I would say, think about what you're doing all day long. What time are you exercising? Um, what type of exercise are you doing? What time are you eating? And when are you stopping eating? And what did you eat? Mm-hmm. Um, how much of this deep breathing have you been doing? Have you done any? Thing like, you know, spend 10 minutes with your legs up the wall to give your heart a rest in the middle of the day so that it actually you have a decrease in your in your heart rate. So I guess that's what I where my book is coming from is trying to see yourself as a whole system and that there isn't necessarily like a a silver bullet that's going to give you the deep sleep because it's really about what you're doing all the time that affects everything else. Well, you had one practical piece of advice for, for older people, um, which is don't drink anything for the last three hours before you go to sleep. So, yeah. in, and your explanation of it was slightly different than I, I, you know, it didn't have to do with sphincter muscles or anything. It had to do with something else as to why that, that, that decreases. So why don't you explain that idea? Yeah. So our um, circadian rhythm, right, which is we have every cell in the body has a little clock inside it and we have this part of the brain um, that is the conductor and it tells you when to be aroused during the day and when to be going into your downstate during the night. Um, and it's controlling a lot of our bodily functions. And one of those functions is your bladder. Um, and it and, and when you're when you're young, you have this very strong circadian rhythm that tells you, okay, you can pee all day and then stop peeing at night. Mm. Um, but as we get older, our circadian rhythms become weaker for many reasons. A lot of them have to do with the fact that we're just not getting outside in the day and getting enough bright light. We're not jump-starting our circadian rhythm with exercise in the morning. Um, and so we get these weaker circadian rhythms. Um, and what that means is that we also have weaker bladder control at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that inhibition of the bladder starts to get a little weaker. And so one of the main issues for people as they get older is that um, their sleep gets fragmented because they need to wake up to pee. Mm-hmm. So if your bladder is empty at night, that is a much harder thing for uh, you to, you know, that's, that's a, it, it's an easier way for you to get past that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I recommend, you know, at least two, but probably three hours before bedtime to stop any kind of liquids, mm-hmm. because then um, you get your bladder empty and then you don't have so many uh, middle of the night awakenings and that allows you to get into that deeper sleep. Nice. Kind of common sense, practical advice, but uh, could could save quite a few hours of, of uh, unsleep because a lot of people wake up in, in the middle of the night and then don't fall asleep very easily because the other things are in their mind. So you, before we go to the next question, you talked about the Middle Ages a little bit and that people would get up in the middle of the night for a little while and then and then yeah. do something. 
But we don't want to go back to that, I hope. But, but why don't you explain what the people used to do, because I think not everybody knows about that. Yeah, there's a, a, um, a uh, historian who wrote a book, um, Roger Eckrich. I know the last name is Eckrich, and I know the first name starts with an R. Um, and the book is called Night, and it talks about, he did a historical um, analysis of diaries and, uh, you know, pe what people were writing about, about their experiences. And what he found is that people would sleep in two sections. They would have first sleep and second sleep. And then in the middle of the night, they would get up and do things. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, it's, it matches on perfectly with today's adults who in their late 30s, early 40s, they start to have these middle of the night awakenings. Mm -hmm. um, and this idea is that this may actually be part of your natural circadian rhythm to become more fragmented. It mm -hmm. may be something that isn't as, you know, pathological as, yeah. as, as people often want to sort of create these pathologies. Um, of course, you want to have eight hours of consolidated sleep, but if you don't, you know, there's a historical precedent for the idea that maybe we've been kind of, you know, spending some time awake in the night for eons. So instead of thinking of themselves as pathological, they can at least think of themselves as medieval. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's better. <laughs> yeah, right? Or just, you know, and, you're, and, and is there something that you can do to deal with, um, you know, first, don't, it, the second you wake up, don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. Right. Um, and so you don't start the, the train whistles like, ah! Right. And then yeah. also make sure that you don't expose yourself to any kind of blue light, mm -hmm. because that really will tell your brain that it's morning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can wear the blue light blockers. You can have uh, circadian light bulbs that will only be in deep yellows um, mm -hmm. during the night. Um, and also you can do we have a paper, recent paper. Um, first author Simon is um, progressive muscle relaxation. And we've shown that even in a nap, a short nap, you could get 10 minutes more of deep sleep, slow wave sleep, if you do progressive muscle relaxation. And actually, I have a audio version of that progressive muscle relaxation um, that we used in the experiment. In my first book, Take a Nap, Change Your Life, if you go to the audible version of it, mm -hmm. there's a whole section that you could just download, which is just me telling you how to do this. And so you could listen to that as a hypnotic, hypnotic uh, trick in the middle of the night. Great. So now we have another question. This one's from Karen Kilman. I participated in Professor Matt Walker's sleep lab. Have you found out anything that's new that was discovered after his book, Why We Sleep? Are you familiar with that book? Why we sure. Sleep? Matt and I were in. Um, Matt was the postdoc in the lab of Bob Stickgold when I was the graduate student. I was uh, his first graduate student and Matt was his first postdoc. Uh, so Matt and I have been in parallel the whole way through and mm. we do basically the same kind of research. So mm. whatever I'm saying is kind of, um, oh, Bryce Mander, the person I just talked to, that was Bryce Mander was his graduate student or no, his postdoc. So yeah. we're all kind of creeping around the same stories. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, from Diane B., how does mindfulness meditation play out, upstate, downstate, or something else? No, it's, it's all downstate. It's, you know, the, the, the root of all of our restorative practices, mindfulness, um, uh, meditation, of many ranges of it, meditation, yoga, tai chi, they all start with breath, right? Getting in contact with breath, and then mindfulness, the addition of that is 
becoming an observer of your thoughts and not attachment, right? Non-attachment is, is uh, definitely a system of being able to uh, watch the um, arousal state happen, watch the thoughts happen, and also be able to calm it down through non-attachment. So mm -hmm. definitely mindfulness is right there as a core um, practice of the downstate. Uh, from Peter O, what is the impact on brain chemistry or physiology of sleep disorders which prevent deep sleep, such as RLS or sleep apnea? There's so many uh, that we could point to. Uh, you know, that's kind of a, a big, big question. And, you know, you could point to some that are neurochemistry. Maybe there's some genetic issues. There's anatomical issues. Um, there's so many potential things. And then, you know, you can also get issues from medication that you're taking for another disorder that may be affecting your sleep. So that's a whole big nugget um, that I think um, people, who people who are using different types of medication, um, I think it's important to think about how active, um, you know, when is the best time to be taking medication? Um, is there a sort of a chrono a pharmacological approach that you could that you could bring that would mean that your um, the medication that you're taking is doing the least harm to your downstate. I think mm. that that's something that you could talk about with your doctor. But yeah, that's that's a whole world um, that's complicated and and uh, needs a lot of uh, uh, more research. Well, here's a a nice simple question, but it's uh, from Tom Magny. Are there deleterious effects from too much sleep? Yeah. Uh, in some cases. Mm -hmm. So it's funny. You ask, it's like you hear a question, and then you think of all the different ways you can answer that question. <laughs> so, you that's know, there's some really book. interesting... Yeah, right? Uh, there's some... There's. I mean, that's kind of why I wrote this book, really, is because mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you have so much that you develop in your head, and you just want to mm -hmm. put it out on paper. Yeah. Um, so so I will say... Um, Definitely, there is from the, you know, you can be somebody with something called hypersomnia where, where you sleep a lot, but you wake up tired, mm -hmm. right? Your sleep is inefficient. There's something um, potentially non-constructive um, is potentially a, a way of using this word um, about your sleep. And even though you stay asleep for long periods of time, whatever... Um, is restorative that's supposed to wake you up and make you feel like I'm ready for the day isn't happening in your sleep. So that's, that's, um, there's also, uh, that you can sometimes have too much of one type of sleep. So for people with depression, there's a hypothesis that people with depression have too much and too intense of a REM period mm -hmm. um, and that that may lead to some um, of the sort of the mood-related issues that you see with depression and potentially why some of the medication that people take for, you know, antidepressant mm -hmm. medication, why those may be successful in part, mm -hmm. maybe because they reduce your time in REM sleep. <laughs> so definitely not, you know, not all sleep is good sleep and, you know, it's not always the more the better. Um, here's a, a, an artistic question from Bhavani Chandraksar. I would like to know about the interesting picture in your background. Why the white elephant in the star? Thank you. I will give priority to my sleep from now on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this it's is not a the painting. Republican Party, right? 
God, no. Uh, this is a <laughs> painting by my uh, dearest friend Amriti, uh, Julie Duffy, and she is, she collected, she's an amazing painter, but she collected, this is from her trip to India, mm -hmm. one of many, many trips to India, but all of this around here is trash that she collected in India, and then she uh -huh. made this painting, and it's just, I adore it. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so I always feature it as a something for people to look at while I'm talking. <laughs> okay, here's another question from Peter O. I think we can get through all the questions. We just, a couple more minutes. Sleep disturbances can be caused by the immune system, such as in those with cancer. By what mechanism is the immune system disturbing sleep in these cases? Do, you, do they know that? In what way it causes the problem? So I don't know about the directionality that you're talking about, Peter. I do know that there is a directionality of sleep benefiting the immune system. Mm -hmm. um, there is research that shows, I don't know if that's what you mean, that maybe fragmented sleep poor sleep um this might be what you're talking about so it's not it's not that it's not that good sleep can can in, can deteriorate the immune system mm -hmm. but it's that poor sleep can deteriorate the immune system so there's some amazing research where you know here's just one of the wacky ways people have studied this um people are um uh put into hotel rooms mm -hmm. by themselves and they're you know some of them are kind of poorly sleeping and others are better sleeping and then they're given rhinovirus spray in their nose mm -hmm. so they're they're given a virus and then they're just watched they're by themselves in these hotel rooms for for like a week or so and um they look at uh the the scientists then look at how, who becomes ill from the rhinovirus and what you find is that that the sleep prior to uh, getting the um, experimental rhinovirus predicted who got sick. The people who slept more poorly, who had uh, decreased uh, total sleep time in the week prior, were the ones who were more susceptible to the virus. Um, you also find that there's a whole body of research that looks at um, how post vaccinations um post-vaccination sleep can have an impact on whether the vaccination how powerful the vaccination is in mm -hmm. preventing disease so there's definitely a relationship with you know how good your sleep is and your immune your immune system and and uh, so the immune system is affected by poor sleep and and is, is aided by good sleep is there any time that the immune system attacks sleep does, does the immune system ever cause disturbances in the sleep itself? Is there any research like that? That's a really interesting idea. I mean, it, it, it's, it's probable that it, there is. I'm thinking about cancer, actually, mm -hmm. um, because there's a lot of research that shows that people with cancer do have poor sleep. Um, and there's a, a lot of research that shows that chemotherapy really messes with people's circadian rhythms. Right. So you get... Um, and that's why these light box therapy treatments um, after chemotherapy are super beneficial to um, uh, improving sleep in people uh, with that um, issue. But I, but I'm not. I, I can't think of exactly anything that's popping up in my head. There probably is something in my head, but I can't think of it right now. All right. Here's an interesting question from Diane B. Why isn't the protein trash that gets washed out by the glial cells? Uh, why does it not get washed out on the second night? How, how would the glial cells be able to distinguish between new trash proteins and old trash proteins, so the ones that were left over from the night before? 
Yeah, I it's don't probably get not. A, it's not. Yeah, it's not like a selective thing. Right. It's just an amount. Just an amount. It's sort of. Okay. It's sort of like a. You know, the cumulative um, protein trash that you're talking about. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, that that it's a cumulative effect. That there's only a certain amount that you can do. So if you don't kind of, you know, if if you if you if you get behind in your sleep, that you can get behind in your cleaning. Yeah. So you should floss. You need to floss. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And here, we'll we'll finish with this one. From Diane B. also. Uh, How important is the timing of sleep? Does it need to be synced with daylight and nighttime for more restorative sleep? You had some information in your book about people who worked at night, you know. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, there is no doubt that... um, that working at night, night shift is not good for your health, right? Mm-hmm. That we, that, that has been established. Are there people who um, are night owls who may actually have a shifted rhythm that, uh, you know, are perfectly healthy? Um, yes, of course. So, so um, where the night owls come from and is it a biological shift that really is, you know, do they have circadian differences mm-hmm. um, in terms of biologically circadian differences? Is it a preference thing? This requires more research. And why this is there, uh, we just don't know. I'm, I'm super interested in this topic. And you can see in the book, mm-hmm. I talk about it a lot. You right. know, I, like in every, I constantly am coming back to this idea of what is going on with these different phases and what, you know, what do we see in, you know, cultures that don't have exposure to electricity, do they have different phases of sleep? And Mm -hmm. so there's a lot, I think that um, there's a lot of big questions that are completely unanswered. So it's a good question. And I don't think that we really know enough, but please, um, you know, read, read the book and try to, you know, see what you think about some of these different uh, studies, because I think that there's a nature nurture in there, right? And we don't know what, there's probably some nature in terms of that there are some biological differences where why people um, stay up as long as they do. um, And that maybe those people really do have a whole system that's shifted and they can get the same upstate downstate benefits, you know, without paying attention to the sun. Mm-hmm. or that maybe it's reversed, you know, or something that that may be true. There's also research that shows that, you know, when people uh, have never been exposed to electrical light, you don't see any phase differences across mm-hmm. people within that culture. Um, so is there, a, there's a, obviously a strong learned component to um, our night owl kind of behaviors. So, you know, I, I think that we don't really understand enough about chronotypes, and I think that's a really interesting topic. And if you're very interested, go to grad school because a lot more research needs to be done. Right? Yes, <laughs> science. So thank you very much, Dr. Mednick, for uh, sharing your research and, and uh, you know, what's going on with the latest in brain research in addition to sleep research. And anyone who wants to know more details, especially the practical things, we didn't get to very many of them, but there's another dozens and dozens in her book. Um, And so ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 120th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for joining us, and thank you very much, Dr. Bendick, for bringing your book. Thank you so much for having me. It was a total delight. It was so much fun talking. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. 
Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.